to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse, an unyielding faith, devotion to Christ, innovation, and great energy marked his ministry. Because of his strong Philadelphia connection, most people think of Barnhouse as part of the Northeastern Evangelical Establishment. But in fact, he was born in California and is a 1915 graduate of Biola. Barnhouse went on to Princeton Seminary. Later on, one of Barnhouse's professors at Princeton said, Donald Barnhouse got his theology from Biola, not Princeton. Today, Dr. Barnhouse presents a study of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. During the past weeks, all of my texts have had in it the same word, first. And in chapter 7 and verse 5, Christ said, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the moot out of thy brother's eye. Now, the Lord Jesus first certainly had a sense of humor how often he put things together that shocked the sensibilities and caused a reaction of laughter, a camel in a bowl of soup. You take out the gnat and you swallow the camel. Pearls before swine, figs from thistles, the blind leading the blind. <laughs> These are things that cause a, a, a laugh to come forth. And above all, the sense of the incongruous gives fire to this text. For he describes a man rushing up to another man and saying, Oh, you have a splinter in your eye. But this man has a telegraph pole coming out of his own eye. For when it says beam, he's not talking about a sunbeam. He's talking about a log. Oh, you poor thing, you have a splinter in your eye. Let me help you take it out. And everyone who sees the man running up sees the log in his own eye. And then Jesus says, You hypocrite. How can you say to the brother, take the splinter out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Now, the picture that is set before us then is a humorous one, but it is akin to pathos because it is such a revelation of a common characteristic in all of the human race and because it brings forth such an absolute judgment from the Lord himself. Oh, it's so easy to see the faults that are in our neighbor, and so hard to see our own faults. And the text is one that is rarely preached upon, because perhaps uh, it is such a probing text, and it goes to the heart of the speaker first of all. Now, uh, in plowing this ground, therefore, there are certain considerations and principles that must be looked at. In the first place, one writer said that the words of this text are so simple that a child or a simpleton can understand them without explanation. And that's why preachers have not preached on them. But when something is so simple that a child or a simpleton can understand it, we must not allow this simplicity to take us by them and simply to say, well, the Lord says, don't take a splinter out of somebody else's eye when you have a telephone pole sticking out of your own eye. The, the idea 
might be reduced to the simple fact that we're to set our own house in order before we try to take on the house of somebody else. Now, this text is found in the Sermon on the Mount. And we may begin by asking ourselves why the Lord Jesus Christ gave these ethical truths. Through all of his early life, the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life of a simple peasant in a peasant household in a peasant village. He saw his neighbors, and he saw them through divine eyes, and he saw them through human eyes. He was the God-man. Uh, even when some people began to follow him, we read in John 2 that he did not trust himself to them because he knew all men and needed no one to bear witness of man, for he himself knew what was in the man. Now this is a very terrible phrase, if we examine it closely, that the Lord Jesus Christ knew what was in the heart of the human race. Jesus Christ saw beneath all outward form and all outward pretense. Now this is why he could speak as he did, and this is why his words carry such acid. He saw to the heart, but at the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ was love incarnate. He had come to take our humanity in order that he might transform it like unto his own, the only perfect, pure humanity. And this is why his words carry such healing balm. And so you discover that in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a combination of acid and of salve to burn and to cure. Christ knew that people commonly talk about people. And this word is against criticism, against gossip, against slander, against backbiting. Neighbors talk about their neighbors. People talk about people. And almost always there's a little edge of malice in conversation when people just talk about those who aren't present. The Hindu proverb has it that a whisperer is a liar. And they also say that gossip is like a snake bite, like a needle when it goes in, and like a plowshare when it comes out. And in Madagascar, the Malgesi have a proverb that says, scandal is like an egg. When it hatches, it has wings. And in Kikiyo, out in Africa, there is a saying that gossiping and lying are brother and sister. Now, what do people commonly talk about? Well, you say they commonly talk about people. And the person, if you ask him what he talks about, he'll say, well, I am interested in people. You are rather nosy. She is a dirty gossip. But if you heard a tape recording of all three, you wouldn't know which was which. But we have the tendency of saying it this way. Oh, I just tell the truth about people. You make a lot of nasty remarks. He is a backbiting scandal monger. What do people commonly talk about? I've heard people twit bald-headed men on their baldness, stout people on their fatness, even cripples on their infirmity. And when someone has a reverse of fortune, you commonly will hear people say, well, he had it coming to him, or she deserved every bit of it. It served him right. There seems to be in human nature a savage desire to hurt others. Now, this is manifested in the extremes in nicknames that are given to people. How cruel children can be in giving nicknames to their fellows that can hurt. 
Now, Jesus Christ says to those who follow him that they are to have no part in this filthy traffic between the tongue and the ear. For the ear is as much a part of gossip as the tongue. You couldn't have gossip without an ear to pour it in. And it's the heart that connects the speaking tongue and the listening ear. Now, when the Lord Jesus says that the criticism is a telegraph pole while the sin that's being criticized is only a splinter, there's some mathematics here that needs to be looked at closely. A man tells a lie and another man criticizes him for lying. And the Lord says that the lie is a splinter and that the criticism of the lie is a log. A woman falls into grievous sin and commits adultery and someone suspects it and begins to talk about it. And the Lord calls the adultery a splinter and calls the gossip about it a log. Now this would seem to be a new form of mathematics and perhaps there's a good explanation for it. For the Lord said in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts for as the heavens are high above the earth so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. And in the divine mathematics, a sin that somebody looks upon as being little, it may be big, and a sin that they look upon as being big may be little. Because everything depends on how God is looking at this. Now in what way would his placement of criticism as being worse than the sin that's criticized, in what way would this be possible? Perhaps we can find an analogy in the story of the woman who brought her gift to the treasury and gave the mites, the widow's mites. If you look at this passage, it says this. There were wealthy people at the same time giving large sums. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, her whole living. Now certainly Christ was not claiming that the two pieces of money, an eighth of a cent multiplied by two, a quarter of one of our pennies, certainly he was not saying that a quarter of a penny is more than a thousand shekels. But what he was saying was that he was not using the mathematics of the adding machine, he was using the mathematics of the heart. He was talking about proportion and not about quantity. And believe me, the mathematics of the heart is far more advanced mathematics than conic sections or the calculus. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that if we compare mites and motes, we'll come up with the conclusion that the important thing is the motive. And it is the motive that prompts a person to do something. Why did this poor woman give her two mites? And why did this person begin to scratch at the motes in someone else's eye? The Lord Jesus Christ knew the motive of the woman who gave all. She loved. And he also knows the motive of the people who do the gossiping and the scandal-monging. And he knew the motives of these that are guilty of criticism, of backbiting, and of scandal-mongering. Because any time any man thus speaks, I don't care who it is, whenever you've ever criticized anybody, you have spoken from ignorance. You have not known the motives that caused people to do what they were doing. Some time ago I heard of a case that illustrated this. There was a certain church 
It was a church which publishes the gifts of every person that gives. Annually, there's a list printed that showed that Mr. X had given $1,000 to the church and Mr. Y had given $500 and that Mrs. So-and-so had given $52 a dollar a week and that some other person had given 10 cents a Sunday, $5.20 in the year. And there was a man in the place, they, everybody knew his salary was twelve dollars or $15,000 a year, and yet he gave a very small amount to the church, a couple of hundred dollars out of twelve or 15000 And there was a great deal of whispering about it. Should he really be an elder? After all, he didn't live expensively. He must have been salting it away. He must have stocks and bonds. He must do this. After all, look at that list. Why, he gave $200 and a man that works for him and gets half the salary gave $400. This isn't Christian. This. And the backbiting went on, went on. And then the man died. And when he died, he left absolutely nothing. And it was discovered in his will that he had been paying $125 to $150 a week for years to keep a sister in an insane asylum. And nobody had ever known about it. And yet, so much of his income had been going to that and to other similar things that he didn't have much left over. And suddenly it was discovered that he had been living a life very much below what he could have lived and according to his income. And thus it was seen that the gossip was a log and that what they thought was something in him wasn't there at all. Now it's certain also that not only do the moat seekers speak without a knowledge of the motives that are in the hearts of those whom they criticize, but it's also the fact that people that are seeking the splinters in the eyes of others are often professional reformers, professional people trying to make everything right and fight against sin and uh, to do it perhaps to cover up some things that are in their own lives. Some of them have given themselves uh, and their own DD, uh, a doctrine detective, and they go to church for the purpose of discovering if the minister is orthodox. They'll snatch at the least straw of deviation and blow it into an apostasy. They'll stir up trouble, and they'll tell people that if you're going to be faithful to Christ, you've got to hate that man. He's a modernist. You're going to have to fight against this man. And they'd want other people to join them in the criticism and his attack goes on his target with an continuing and increasing venom. Now the study of psychology and psychiatry has advanced to the point today where we know enough about the abysmal recesses of the human heart to know that very possibly in such a spirit the professional reformer, the moat finder, the doctrine detective, the critic, the scandal monger, and the gossip, their work is often a cloak to cover up their own hidden desires, or a defense mechanism, tearing down someone else in order that they might build themselves a little higher. So it's understandable then that the Lord Jesus called these people hypocrites. You hypocrites was what he said about critics, gossips. Now, let's ask ourselves a question or two. Why do people criticize? Does such criticism arise because there is a profound grief over sin? Is the critic moved by the fact that God is being outraged and that great wrong is being done? Well, in reality, if we look close, a critic has no sensitivity for sin whatsoever. In fact, 
if the things of which he accuses a neighbor turn out to be not as he said, if it's discovered that his accusations are false and that the neighbor is innocent, why the critic immediately begins to look for something else to criticize. Well, yes, what I said there perhaps wasn't the truth, but, and he'll go on again. So it's certainly not because of any outrage for sin or any desire to see the Lord magnified. Secondly, it is not at all because of any great love for the neighbor. The man doesn't criticize because he loves the neighbor. The carrier of tales and the bringer of accusations is not doing this out of love for the person about whom he's talking. For love, the Bible tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not expose sin. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now it follows then that since we see that there are no positive motives for criticism, and since the Lord says that the critic is a hypocrite, it follows that the critic is moved by envy, by jealousy, by selfishness, and all other evil motives that put the poison of asps under the lips as God describes the human race. The critic should also understand that everything that he says is a boomerang that ultimately is going to come back on himself. The verse just before uh, the text about the moat and the beam, the splinter and the log, the text just before says, with what measure you meet it shall be measured unto you. Curses like chickens always come home to roost. McLaren has well illustrated this because in a sermon on judge not that ye be not judged for with what measure you measure it shall be measured unto you, Alexander McLaren said this, a carping spirit of eager folk finding necessarily tinges people's feelings towards its possessor and he cannot complain if the severe tests which he applied to others are used on his own conduct. A cynical critic cannot expect his victims to be profoundly attached to him or ready to be lenient to his failings. If he chooses to fight with a tommyhawk, he will be scalped someday. And the bystanders will not lament profoundly. But a more righteous tribunal than that of his victims condemns him. For in God's eyes, the man who covers not his neighbor's faults with the mantle of charity does not have his own blotted out by divine forgiveness. This spirit is always accompanied by ignorance of one's own faults, which makes him who indulges in it ludicrous. So our Lord would seem to intend by the figure of the moat and the beam. It takes a great deal of close peering to see a moat. But the censorious man sees only the moat and sees it out of scale. No matter how bright the eye, though it be as clear as a hawk's eye, its beauty is of no moment to him. The moat magnified, and nothing but the moat is his object. And he calls this one-sided exaggeration criticism and prides himself on the accuracy of his judgment. He makes just the opposite mistake in his estimate of his own faults, if he sees them at all. We look at our neighbor's faults through a microscope, and we look at our own through the wrong end of a telescope. 
Now, the New Testament everywhere proclaims that the Lord cannot effectively work in someone who does not forgive others. The Bible points this out, that God cannot bless you if you do not forgive others. If you're holding anything against anybody in this world, God cannot effectively use you. If someone tried to block your progress, if someone was the cause of a detour in your plans, if there someone was an obstacle in your desires, and if you have some wrong feeling against them, God cannot bless. And it's therefore imperative that we face this problem in ourselves and ask ourselves at once to take a severe inventory of our state of mind. Do we have an enemy? Do you have an enemy? Is it our fault if we do? Have we forgiven any and everything that he may have done to us? Have we gone the second mile to overlook the things that we might have considered as slights to ourselves? Job lost everything that he had. And after this, his body was afflicted with boils, and to make it worse, his wife nagged him. And then on top of it all, there came the comforter with their hollow arguments and their vapid meanderings until God intervened. And in Job 38, 2, it says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And after this revelation, Job was brought to the place where he began to pray for these people that had rubbed salt in his wounds. And when he prayed for them, it says in Job 42, 10, The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And also the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. Now in the light of all this, it's very, very important that we consider our conduct, that we make plans to keep our tongues yielded to the Lord and to do everything that we possibly can do for the good of the ones whom we think have done us evil. We must begin by applying all of this to our own selves. We must follow the disciples in the upper Rome. Do you remember the moment when Jesus Christ said, one of you shall betray me? There was no man there in the presence of the eternal light. There was no man there that got up and said, Lord, is it Bartholomew? Lord, is it James? Lord, is it Peter? Lord, is it John? Lord, is it... What did they say? In every heart... When they said, Lord, is it I, there was an awareness of the possibility of this betrayal. Oh, unhappy is the Christian who does not know the nature of his own nature. This is why in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, it says, let him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. And it's when we know that we are capable of these deep hypocritical sins, then it is that we can come to the Lord. And we can ask him to cleanse us and to give us the positive asset that will make it impossible for us to go picking motes from the eyes of others. And what is the positive asset that's going to keep you away from the splinters in another's countenance? That positive asset is an ever-growing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If we love him, we'll want to be occupied with him. A man who truly loves his wife is not going to spend his time examining the flaws in another woman's face. And a man who truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ 
is not going to be concerned about the actions of others. He's going to say, Lord, you have to deal with them. I'll not be talking about them or what they're doing. After all, we do not expect anything from unbelievers. I never expect anything from a man who's not born again. This is the unsaved world. This is the natural man that receives not the things of the Spirit. We expect, however, we expect everything from Christ. And we're delighted when we see him at work in the lives of our fellow believers. Listen to Paul whenever he heard about a young church. He says to the Ephesians, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And he says to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, when the heart is filled with love for the Lord, one is always delighted in what he does in others, and there'll be a growing love for all those who have named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we begin to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and as we love the Lord, we soon discover that our tongue is employed in prayer for them. And we delight that the Lord is working in their lives, and we glorify him for what he's doing. And then it is that he looks at us, and we begin to realize that we're not criticizing, we're not finding fault, that we're loving him and that we're loving all those that are his. And then he begins to smile and says, well, with the same measure that you measure it out to others, this is the measure that I give to you. And suddenly we discover that our cup is running over. Let me close with this illustration. In the early days of the United States, when the vast forests of the Midwest began to be cut down, this nation needed millions of logs. And the men went into the forests in the winter and cut down and cut down, and there was no way to move the logs except to float them on the rivers. And the rivers were frozen, but as soon as springtime began to come, the logs were brought and dumped into the rivers. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of logs began to float down the rivers. And there came a moment, very frequently, when a log would be caught by the shore and then another log would be caught on that log, and then another log would be caught on those two, and pretty soon there was a log jam. And then there were a breed of American pioneers that arose that were called the rollers. These men with their cleated shoes and carrying their spears, they jumped from log to log. Their life was in danger at every second. And they were looking to take the log out of the whole jam so that everything could flow fully down the river. And finally, they would dislodge one, and 5,000 great tree trunks that were back up the river would begin to move and grind and come downwards. The one that was the log that was pulled out let everything flow. Well, there's a verse in the book of Revelation that says to Laodicea, I counsel you that you buy salve, from him who gives you the eye salve of grace, that you may anoint your eyes, that you may see. And if you discover that you've had a log jam in your eye, that if there has been that in you which showed you to be occupied with your 
neighbor's splinters instead of your own beams, logs that were jammed there. You go to Christ and ask him to deal with this thing to take it out of your eye, to give you the clear seeing in the light of the word of God, and suddenly you're going to discover why he put the word first in connection with this. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll discover that your nature has been transformed, that the Lord is working in you, and with the measure you meet, it shall be measured unto you, and your cup will be running over. Let us pray. O God, our Father, We thank thee that the Lord Jesus Christ was faithful to us and that he gave us these teachings that we so need to know in our lives. We thank thee that thou hast put a first in these things and told us that here is where we're to begin in our Christian dealing. And we ask thee that the Holy Spirit shall take these truths to our hearts and build us in Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.